this is David Oakes uh, talking to you from the road. I have just crossed the border of England and Scotland. <laughs> so hard to leave Cumbria. It's so beautiful. Literally, the sun ripped through the clouds, and you could see the snow level adorning at the top of the mountain tops. It's such an amazing county. Anyway, I, it's not good to have favourites. It is not good to have favourites. Anyway, I'm on my way to somewhere equally as beautiful, down to the little uh, coastal town of Wigtown, the Scottish book capital, uh, to talk to Dr. Cat Barlow of the South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project. Um, I haven't done it yet. Don't know how it's going to go. There's going to be a live audience. Hopefully, if people turn up. Uh, otherwise, it's just me and my two friends who run the bookshop. But uh, it should be a good one. Uh, hold on tight. I hope you like eagles, and uh, this is Trees of Crowd. Uh, enjoy listening. Hello, my name's David Oakes. Um, thank you, Steph and Tessa, for inviting me up from that there London town to talk to you today. So this uh, this is a podcast that I present. It's called Trees of Crowd. It's a natural history slash arts crossover podcast. But we have a theme tune normally, but there's no hi-fi in the in the bookshop so we did the next best thing which is go five doors down that way and find beth porter and a cello and uh here you go this is the trees of crowd theme tune David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Huddled between books, waiting to be sold, listening to tales of eagles of gold. I get to talk to people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. And this week I'm at the Open Book in Wigtown, Scotland's national book town, and we're recording this episode with a live audience. That's your cue to work. As you can hear, Wigtown's entire population is in the room. Uh, so, a big thank you to Beth for reimagining the Baddest theme tune again. Thank you for doing that. Uh, right, so I'm joined here in the children's corner by Dr. Kat Barlow, the project manager of South of Scotland's Golden Eagle Project. Kat has 20 years of experience working in the field of conservation ecology, including on the groundbreaking Osprey Translocation Project at Rutland Water, but she is now committed to enticing Britain's golden eagles back to the south of Scotland. Kat, hello, and welcome to Trees A Crowd. 
Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me along. Well, and welcome to the Open Book in Wigtown. It is a fantastic place. So I've been going through the books here to find every single sort of Golden Eagle thing that I can find. So I thought I'd test you about your Golden Eagle knowledge. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a book called The Eagle in Fact and Fiction by Joanna Johnston. So where are we? Here we go. The Golden Eagle is unusually free from enemies. Agree so far? Unless you class itself, uh, Golden Eagles could be quite aggressive towards other Golden Eagles. I, I'm going to ask you to continue on that in a few seconds' time. Uh, there's probably only one creature aside from man that he needs to fear, and that is what, according to Joanna Johnson of the Eagle Book? Oh, good question. Um, in this country? No. Um, Should we open I up to the crowd? Would say, yes, it's anyone here now? <laughs> the one, according to Joanna, the one thing that could potentially harm a golden eagle, other than man and other than themselves. A leech? Oh, like Strong. That. Where do we stand on leech? You're the expert. Um, it's a possibility. I don't know if they'd be, you know, hang around long enough for a leech to get them, but, you know, they certainly can catch ticks and things like that, so potentially. Okay, any other takers? That's why I would say some kind of parasite. Some kind of parasite again, yeah. okay. Diseased food. Diseased food, okay. Yeah. Well, the answer that you're, you're all wrong. <laughs> and I know, the, I want to know. And the second-hand book that nobody wanted to buy in the entirety of Wigtown <laughs> says that it's the porcupine. Oh, oh okay. that if in a moment of bad judgment he decides to attack that prickly animal he could easily die as a result the porcupine's quills can become embedded in his flesh grow infected and kill him yeah. uh, obviously the gender of this golden eagle is, is male and a female golden eagle would fare much better um, <laughs> they're bigger and stronger so maybe they would um, so yeah okay well let's start with that you said that golden eagles sometimes attack themselves why um, oh, and if you can hear a, a two-year-old in the background, that's Beth Porter's lovely daughter, Molly, <laughs> who's commented she's got her own opinions about golden eagles, and she's going to be the new world oh, expert. I hope we hear them later on, that'll be good. Um, so in, in Scotland, you know, particularly in, in a natural population, golden eagles are generally the apex predator, so there isn't much that can, can get them or sort them out, but if you reach a point where there are enough golden eagles around, then they will start to be quite aggressive towards each, uh, each other. So if a youngster you know, flies into a territory of a, an established pair, they can be attacked, they can be killed even. How um, big would their territories be? That depends completely on the availability of food and the kind of surrounding terrain and things like that. Okay. Um, in some areas they can be relatively small if there's, you know, a lot of food. In other areas they can be absolutely enormous, so it's how long's a piece of string. Okay, uh, how long is a golden eagle's yeah. spool of wool? But in somewhere like uh, Lewis and Harris, where there's quite a good, healthy population, there's a good number of sub-adults about, being killed by another golden eagle is not that uncommon. It's actually uh, you know, one of the kind of reasons why they would come to a sticky end. Okie dokie. All right, well, let's before we go into eagles properly, um, let's start with you. Where did you grow up? Where's home? Because you're not from the south of Scotland, judging by the sound of your yes, voice. Yes, can you tell? <laughs> um, I am from Durham, County Durham, northeast. I grew up there, my parents still live in the same house that I kind of came back from the hospital to and I was there for 18 years until I moved on to university. Were you into the natural world then or was this a later in life joy? Absolutely, yeah. My family have always been, you know, very into kind of wildlife and walks and fresh air and all that kind of thing and my dad, I think, taught me kind of love of birds, uh, possibly a little bit forced to begin with so being dragged out in the rain and the mud and um, I was a little bit jealous that my friends got to stay at home and watch television. Is he what you would call a twitcher or? 
Not particularly, but he is very keen on birds. So it was definitely from him that I kind of got that love. And I was uh, a member of the YOC when I was uh, a young girl. I remember winning a competition. I won a chocolate bar um, by correctly identifying a kestrel, which (laughs) stays with me to this day, just from a photograph, but I I won that. Was the bar they gave you a penguin? Uh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> Never record this with a live audience. Um, uh, the YAC, for anyone who doesn't know, is the Young Ornithologists Club, of which I was yes. a member too. Raise your hands if you remember the YAC. Oh, oh, Raise your hands if you remember the RSPB. There's two of you in the audience. Okay, that's, that's there about there. Three of you. Okay, well, that, none of you are leaving today until you've all joined the RSPB <laughs> and donated to the South of Scotland Gold yeah. Eagle Project and bought a book from Tessa and Steph, who've been kind enough to lend us the Berkshire. So, was uh, did your dad take you sort of out the liberty to hide to go spotting things, or? Um, yeah, I mean, lots of lots of kind of just walking in the countryside and, and out and about. I I do remember the first time I saw a golden eagle, and while it stuck with me, it really wasn't a very impressive experience. <laughs> um, so it would have been. Was he cock a hoop? Was he gosh, there just going? <laughs> he was actually quite annoyed because he couldn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> We'd gone out, it was uh, when there were still birds in the Lake District. Sure. So, you know, this would have been what back in the kind of mid 80s, I suppose. They died out in the lakes in 96 um, or something like that. The, there was a single male there up until about 2016. So oh, okay. it was just before we got started that sure. he yeah, kind of probably died, which was a shame. But um, yeah, he hadn't bred for a long, long time. But when we went, there was a pair breeding. And it was absolutely throwing it down. It was a horrendous day. It was a bit like it is today, wet and windy. And we were there. We were going regardless. And, you know, we'd been told that it was this fantastic species, this wonderful bird. And we went to the viewing point and we were looking down this telescope and it was miles away and there was something brown on a rock. And, you know, this is a golden eagle. It's wonderful. Enjoy this moment. And I was thinking, okay, big brown blob. Um, and then we went for a bit of a walk afterwards. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to say, isn't it? It's not a big brown blob. Uh, we went for a the walk South afterwards. The South of Scotland big brown, big brown blob, blob project. project doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Um, and we went for a walk afterwards and it was oh, you know, miserable, miserable day. And I remember myself and my brother and my sister on one of three. And we said, oh, Dad, what's that? What's that up in the sky? We could see something big flying around and uh-huh. didn't know kind of what it was. Oh, that, that, that could be the eagle. But I said, oh, where, where? Well, it's over there. Where? Well, you know, kind of over there. <laughs> At that age, we couldn't very accurately describe where it was. And okay. my dad was getting more and more frustrated because he wanted to see this golden eagle. And we were like, well, you know, it's behind the trees, over the hill. <laughs> Which hill? <laughs> All those useful things that you say as a child. And I just I remember him getting so frustrated with it. Hypothetically speaking, and I don't want to, 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 to rain on your child's parade, but if your father, who knew what a golden eagle looked like, and you all you could recognise was a big brown blob, and he didn't actually see it to identify that it was a golden eagle, how do you know it was a golden eagle? Good question, good question. I, I think eventually we probably did manage to get him onto it, and he, and he saw it as well. But uh, the, the kind of, you know, the overriding memory is that frustration <laughs> and kind of just slight annoyance in his voice. You know, <laughs> Tell me where it is. Because <laughs> we'd been taught, um, you know, to describe things on a clock so you could something is at 10 o'clock from where you are uh-huh. and I think we've just been so ineffective with our kind of identification the golden eagles at hang on one, one two yeah. three <laughs> yeah. four uh, and at that age it's all about oh, you no, <laughs> no it's gone now no. so it was but it was a it was a wonderful experience and I remember I, I remember it being a special thing even though what we saw was in the distance and it wasn't moving or doing anything very exciting so I think even at that age I knew that golden eagles were a wonderful bird so I my first golden eagle was in Cumbria too, so okay. one would imagine it was probably the same golden eagle. I guess so, yeah. yeah because if they're so territorial and they only go in pairs, and they mate for life? Yep, they mate for life. And there weren't really, 
well, there's only been that, that pair in England uh, for a long time now and, and not many viewing points, so it could well be. Well, thank you for fun. bringing five of them along today. Yes. Yeah, I'm so sorry that the, the listeners don't get to see them, but the sight of the five giant majestic birds sitting in this bookshop is just... <laughs> please don't look directly in their eyes um, and keep your wine glasses to yourself. Thank you. Um, yeah, there's, there is something about golden eagles. I, I remember at school there was... Um, First, there was a rhyme which was first the worst, second the best, third the one with the hairy chest, fourth the golden eagle, fifth the princess. Like, because we're all hierarchical, like golden eagles are, they have a strata of of order. Now, I always try to make myself the fourth person in any sort of lineup so I could be the golden eagle. (laughs) I don't know what that says about me, but it probably means I needed to get out a bit (laughs) more, or was not out enough. Yeah. Um, So, what did you study at university? So I studied biological sciences. Um, so what made someone who saw a golden eagle or big brown blob in the distance, what was the thing that made you then go into biological sciences? I, I remember that age when I think it was, I don't know, choosing GCSE or maybe A-level subjects and really not knowing what I wanted to do at all. Uh-huh. Um, I, I've never really been a person who had a plan or knew where I was going or what I wanted to do. And I remember that point where it was like, you have to decide what you want to do and those subjects will determine what you do at university. And it was such a lot of pressure and I hated it because I didn't really know what I liked or didn't like. Mm-hmm. I knew I quite liked my biology teacher, um, Penny Swain. She was absolutely brilliant and I, I knew that I quite enjoyed that subject. And when it came down to it, I just thought, well, I, I like biology, so I'll, I'll try that and, and that see how it. it goes. Yeah. And then as I started doing my degree, I realised that I just, yeah, I kind of loved the natural world. It was yeah, a kind of light bulb moment, I suppose. So when did things start to sort of lean in the direction of, of raptors and birds of prey? Like, so you were three-year bachelor's in... Biology. Biology. Um, fancy name, biological sciences. What yeah. Was your, what was your dissertation in? For my undergrad, I was looking at... Uh, the kakapo, actually. I was doing a kind of literature study about parrots and um, you know birds that had, were struggling with, with extinction and things like that, and that's where I learned about the kakapo, which is a... For those that don't know who... Does anyone know who what the kakapo is? Okay. Shameful. RSPB <laughs> member who doesn't know what the kakapo is. Um, if people like to know more about the kakapo, they can go listen to Mark Carwardine's episode of this podcast where he talks about being... Uh, sexually assaulted by a kakapo in New Zealand <laughs> yeah. with Stephen Fry looking on and refusing to help him. But, uh, that uh, makes kakapo sound awful. They're, not, they're a lovely bird. They're a slight little parrot. <laughs> <laughs> You've besmirched their good name. So, but, I mean, I guess, I mean, a golden eagle couldn't be further from a, from a kakapo if you tried, but there's still that conservation angle that's coming through there. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Or, or reintroduction, if you will. Yeah, and after after my degree... I, I came out and, and realised that unless you've got the work experience to go with it, each degree is actually not a huge amount of use. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to work with what was then the Game Conservancy, what is now the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, on a project up in Otterburn in Northumberland, sure. uh, which I think was then called the Upland Predation Project or Upland Wader Project, something like that. And it was a, a fascinating kind of eight-year project looking at the benefits of managed grass moors and how it could benefit other species and things like that so um, it was fascinating I got paid to go out and bird watch and look at vegetation and bits and bobs and wandering about on the Otterburn ranges watching shorted owls and kestrels and hen harriers it was absolutely fantastic in a quiet spot where no one else could go because it was the kind of military range we had to have special training and things to to go out there and we were specifically told not to kick a bomb if we saw it lying on the floor. It's always good not to kick a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a whole briefing on yeah, the safety and things like that. And 
I remember we found a golden plover nest right up on the top, right in the middle of the kind of live firing range. So you had to kind of dash on in the morning and then we had to be off by eight o'clock and call in so, so they knew it was all safe so they could get going. And we had this one nest that we had to go and just keep an eye on. And there was a, well, it just looked like an old bit of metal kind of lying in the ground that we used as a marker for the nest because it mm-hmm. was you know, five metres to the east of that or something like that. And it wasn't till at the end of that season that we'd, we'd said, oh, yeah, you know, that nest was right next to that, that bomb. That's, and they said, what? And and, there, and it was actually a live bomb that we'd been walking past all this time. <laughs> we had no idea. It was a good job we hadn't kicked it because it was <laughs> one of those things that we thought was just a bit of metal in the ground, isn't it? But, um, yeah, so it was... But I absolutely loved that job, and I think that really solidified my love for the uplands, upland species, sure. um, you know, birds of prey in particular, and uh, it was fascinating, so I really loved that job. So was that before your PhD? Yes. Yes, yeah, so after that um, I realised that I absolutely loved the natural world and, and wanted to work more in it, but maybe needed to do a little bit more to, you know, kind of uh, work up through, through the kind of sector, so I went down to Warwick University and started a PhD on uh, kind of public access and recreation and how it can impact on biodiversity, but how we can work around it and alongside it to you know kind of mitigate some of those some of those issues. And that was all based in like the Midlands Warwickshire area. So you got your PhD. What happened between that and the ospreys? As that's the first major project that I know that you did. How long before you decided to go into birds and raptors in particular, and what made you make that shift? Um, that was kind of at the same time. So I was doing my PhD part time and teaching kind of countryside skills at a, a college in Northamptonshire at the same time. What's and countryside skill. Countryside skills. So I suppose kind of uh, yeah, ecology, uh, hedge laying, you know, dry stone walling, all that kind can of thing. Can you dry stone wall? I can. I'm not very good at it, but I can. <laughs> I can. I know the theory. I can teach it better than I can do it. I can think. you thatch? <laughs> no, I can't thatch. What's your most impressive countryside skill? I can lay hedges. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if anyone knows what length, so. Um, Take yeah. us through laying a hedge. <laughs> you've got a you've got a rapt audience waiting down to lay a hedge. Um, okay, so. You know, the, the, the more modern way of, of dealing with a hedge is just kind of trimming the top. But as you do that, it gets you get big gaps at the bottom and stock can get out, basically. So it becomes less useful to, to farmers. So the traditional way of doing it would be to basically kind of chop the stem, but not all the way through. You'd leave a little bit kind of connected so the plant was still alive and then you would lay it down so the whole thing would kind of flatten a little bit and then as it, as it would grow, it would grow kind of vertically from those kind of laid stems. Mm. So from the bottom, it's a much kind of thicker, more solid But it's um, not attached structure. in as many places at the bottom, but it sort of runs it, Well, it's still attached floor. in all those same places that it would be, but one, you know, one kind of vertical tree as you lay it down would then grow from various points mm. along it. So okay. it, it thickens a hedge. And while it's a lot more labour intensive um you know it's a bit of a kind of faff to do it's fantastic for wildlife because it means that the the whole hedge is much thicker there's much more um you know kind of cover and things like that and it also means it's more you know more stock proof things can't escape out through the holes at the bottom so that's awesome so thank you for coming from the south of scotland hedge laying (laughs) (laughs) it's lovely i haven't done it for a while but i I used to uh, kind of back in the day so um, yeah, ospreys, I think we were heading towards. Yeah, we? I so, mean, uh, hedges are awesome too, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, um, one of my supervisors on my PhD has a, has a thing for dead hedges, which I always thought was a bit strange. But dead hedging is kind of the, the same way, but using kind of old dead stems to kind of fill in the gaps of, of a hedge. Uh, okay. he, he was quite fascinated by that. But 
Yeah, so as I was this doing... is a pre- we're, for, we're sort of leaving hedges behind as a sort of country. With there's a huge movement going on trying to sort of instill them. We got rid of all the hedgerows back in the sixties and trying to sort of make the farmyard farmlands bigger and get more productivity without necessarily focusing on the biodiversity and the the, the the benefits of having a huge sort of resource. But the number of species you can find in an active, healthy hedgerow are incredible. Mm. I'll need to find a hedge specialist. Or we can just do another episode once we finish recording this Absolutely, one. Absolutely, yeah. On hedges. <laughs> I'll find a hedge. <laughs> um, Get going. So ospreys, yes. Ospreys, yeah. So as I was doing the teaching and the PhD at the same time, I had a friend who was volunteering at the Rutland Osprey Project. So we weren't very far from that. And I started volunteering. So my first shift was a... A night watch, they had various nests of ospreys and they were doing 24-hour watches with their stuff. So my first shift was sat in a shed in the pitch black with one of their staff members staring out into the dark with these very ancient kind of night vision goggles, basically keeping an eye on the nest to make sure that nobody did anything or that nothing kind of got near them or anything like that. So Uh, so how many ospreys were, how many breeding pairs of ospreys were there in Rutland? At that time... There was maybe, I don't know, two or three. Um, there, there weren't very many. It was just the very beginnings of... Uh, and how many are there project. now? Now I think there's seven or eight pairs, okay. potentially. So it's been a, slight, a slightly slow increase, but many of those birds have gone... So this was a, a translocation of Scottish birds down to Rutland. They were they were released. We just helped out for a, for a couple of summers there. Uh, it's actually where I met my partner. But they... Yeah, the birds there are now breeding. They're doing pretty well. They're starting to spread into kind of Northamptonshire and, and other areas, and also contributing to the Welsh population and the Kielder population. So they, you know, they kind of spread out and are doing quite well. Were ospreys in general more? I mean, I've got a book behind me on birds that came back. Which is that an osprey on the front? It, that is indeed. Yep. Yeah. There you go. Um, in terms of bringing them back from the brink, were they as rare as golden eagles are now, or? Was there a greater abundance of the birds in order to sort of support and nurture from that point forward? It's a difficult question. I mean, globally, ospreys are in almost every continent apart from the, the poles. They were really, really struggling in Scotland, but the, the Scottish population was doing much better. And then there was just a decision to try and boost that movement down into England. So the, the Welsh population hadn't really got going. The Kielder population was very, very small at that time. And it, mm-hmm. was, um, it was Roy Dennis who's kind of got the whole thing started and, and decided to try and get it, it boosted at, at Rutland Water. They're, they're now doing a, a project down at Pool Harbour on the south coast as well. Oh, so, really? so they're still going... That's my neck of the woods, that's where I grew up. Yep, well, I'll keep your eyes open. There's, uh, there's birds around there at the moment. So they're, they're doing really well and starting to, to fill out. It's you know just another species that man has at some point or other taken nudged. It. Yeah. There's one of the books <laughs> behind me has a picture. I'll have to take a picture and put it on the website. But it has a picture of people going golden eagle hunting from a plane. And it's... From a plane? It right? is quite barbaric yeah. and you go well that's a hell of a sort of a stretch to sort of push yourself well we'll hire the plane we'll get the gun and we'll go out this is the most effective way to go anyway <laughs> i didn't th- i'm not recommending anyone goes <laughs> um so did you go directly from the rutland osprey project to this so yeah so i i did that kind of at the same time as, as the phd mm. after the or after the phd as i was kind of writing up i needed to get a job just to kind of pay the bills so i came back up to otterburn and did another year at the uh, the otterburn project with the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, as they were then. Mm-hmm. Um, with fewer bombs or more bombs? <laughs> Sorry? More, more armour ar- arm Oh, yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, good point, actually. We, well, I probably had a better idea of what to avoid, <laughs> what, not to, what not to kind of tread on um, at that point. But it was, <laughs> it was fascinating because I, I, I'd done a year right at the beginning of that project and a year right at the end, and I got to see sites. They were swapping some sites... Uh, 
between no management and management, so predator control and no predator control, and watching wader numbers go up and down in those different areas. Okay. So where they were controlling, you know, kind of foxes and corvids and things, uh, the, the waders did better, and where they weren't controlling them, the waders did worse. So there was they can demonstrated a correlation there, and it was fascinating to see that at the beginning and the end of that project. To see how a population of wading birds is affected by predators and limiting it, does, what end does that create? Because I mean, obviously we'll, the impact is such that the population goes down if they're more present, but you can't then stop the population existing without going out and culling that population. So is the argument then that you need an apex predator like the golden eagle to go out and take out those lesser predators? Or? I think, well, that project was there to demonstrate that managing red grass moors for red grass can benefit other species. So if you are controlling the predators for the benefit of red grouse in order to shoot, it also helps other ground nesting species like your curlew and your lapwing and, and, and things like that. So that's what that project was set okay. up to do, was to kind of demonstrate that there are benefits from that type of management. So I, after Otterburn, I came to Langham. So I'd seen a project that was linked with the Langham Moor demonstration project. So that was all about moorland management and hen harriers, so uh, birds of prey, but also connecting people to that and letting them know what was going on with the science and with the scientific project. So I got involved with that and was there for about eight, nine years, which was fantastic. Are you getting seduced by the, the raptors now or is it still just I needed a job so I did the osprey bit to get a bit more experience and then I was doing a bit with hen harriers or do you have do you have a passion for big birds of prey? Yes, definitely. Are uh, you saying that because you're being recorded right <laughs> no, now? No, no, I did. I mean, the Langham, Langham is, if any of you know, is well known for its hen harriers, so which are a superb, absolutely wonderful bird of prey and, you know, incredible. Okay. And then as I was there, I was involved with birds of prey, land managers, um, all, all that kind of thing, and I was asked to get involved with and kind of lead the Eagle Project, so that's how I came into this into this path. So the South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project? Yes. It was about 2008 that the idea came together. Mm-hmm. Um, so around that time, one of the national surveys in Scotland had showed that Golden Eagle numbers were generally increasing in most of Scotland, uh, apart from a couple of places. And one of those places was the South of Scotland. So sure. anything below the central belt-ish, approximately. Um, so as I understand, there, were, there are 440 pairs of golden eagles in the UK at the moment? Yes, probably more. I think it's probably closer to 500. I think, I think that's the, the most recent yeah. census when they filled in their forms and got them in the post. <laughs> um, yeah. And they're all in Scotland or in Northern Ireland now. So there was a project in, oh gosh, it's kind of 90s, early 2000s, uh, a reintroduction of golden eagles into Ireland. Okay. Uh, sort of kind of Donegal. And some of those birds have spilled over into Northern Ireland, but yeah, there sure. are there's some in Ireland and Northern Ireland. But the, that 440, which I think is higher now, Great. is uh, just the kind of Scottish numbers. There's a map that I saw of distribution. When you look at it of Scotland, you see it's literally like a sort of a haircut that you would draw on a on a head of a person. Like they're up in the Highlands and up in the islands, but the south of Scotland, there's nothing here in terms of wild population. There's a few hanging on. So our project is a reinforcement, not a reintroduction. So it's a reinforcement of an existing population, but the population in the south of Scotland was, was so small when we started, it was down to about three pairs, so six birds in the whole of the south of Scotland. And there was some work done in 2014 by doctors Fielding and Howarth, who looked at the you know the decline of golden eagles and the reasons why 
numbers weren't increasing in the south so that the numbers were increasing elsewhere in Scotland but not in the south and that study looked at all the different reasons why the numbers hadn't been increasing as they'd hoped. What do we think? Less food? Too many people? Or? A real combination of things. So a lot of land management changes you know in terms of kind of forestry and farming and all sorts of different things some territories have been lost that way. Um, some persecution so you know historically that had been a, a big factor but more recently you know even kind of in small numbers it was it was still there a little bit. Sure. Uh, yeah, so changes in, you know, even things like wind turbines, uh, golden eagles tend not mm. to fly into them, they tend not to hit them, but they will avoid them. So mm. if you build a wind farm, They'll keep they away. will keep away from it, which then effectively takes it out of, you know, availability for hunting. So so more of them, it does it does affect where they can go. And yeah, more people, more recreation, um, even things like rainfall has gone up in the last kind of 50, 60 years. And they don't so like getting wet. It can, if they get wet at the wrong time of year, you know, if the chicks get wet or the food sure. is a kind of struggle at that time, it just means that they're less productive when it comes to breeding. So overall, it might not affect them, you know, in their sure. lifetime, but it, it was certainly going up. But there was all sorts of different things. And that study showed that while there were three pairs in the south, they felt that there was the space and the food and, and the availability for, for, for somewhere between 11 to 16 pairs. Um, and that, there's people that think that's... Ambitious, and then we'll never, you know, we'll never get, you know, past kind of eight or nine. But That's... we won't know until we try. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, so we're giving it a go. So, before you tell me exactly what you're doing, let, let's say a bit about golden eagles. What are the main characteristics of a golden eagle? They're the second largest bird of prey in the country. Yeah. So the white-tailed is larger, but the, you know, the golden eagle, it's a, it's a big bird. We get asked quite often, have I seen a buzzard or a golden eagle? If you're not quite sure, it's then you've seen a buzzard. <laughs> <laughs> if it's got a wingspan twice the length of a buzzard, yeah. then it's probably a golden eagle. When you see one, you'll you'll probably know. I mean, they are an incredibly rare bird in the south here, particularly, and very very difficult to see. They are incredible eyesight. They don't like people, so if they will probably see you coming long before you see them and mm -hmm. fly away and disappear over the hill. So they are a very very difficult bird to see. And they can uh, fly fast. They get to about two hundred miles an hour on a dive. Yeah, so there's a there's a little bit of competition between the golden eagle and the peregrine. peregrine. There's a lot of people that say the peregrine is the fastest, you know, the fastest bird. There's other people that think Ig the golden eagle could well be, but it just hasn't been clocked. Ignoring yet. that you're obviously <laughs> that a keen supporter of the golden eagle. Yeah, which one do you think then? Go on, go on the record. Oh God, it's tricky. I think the golden eagle could have it if we ever managed to, yeah, kind of get one. Yeah. Okay. Although you know, peregrines are amazing too, so I'm not disparaging them at all. So a wingspan of about. 2.34 meters he says looking at his notes uh yeah Deepishly. something like that yeah i mean they they vary so the females are bigger and, and stronger than the males the males are a bit not well not small and puny i shouldn't say that's the wrong <laughs> the wrong word uh, but the, the females are you know strong <laughs> many many species suffer from that same thing um i i did a job where i had to fly a golden eagle which was incredible oh, wow. and the uh bird handler was bringing it over and the golden eagle was quite vicious flapping its wings scratching at him trying to peck him and all this kind of stuff yeah. and he gave it to me and i was a bit intimidated by that and he just put it on the arm and it just sat there on my arm doing nothing yeah i was like why is he attacking you and not attacking me he said, well, that's, a, that's an apex predator that you've got on your arm there with its mm. beak right up your eye level. Like, it doesn't need to attack you because it's bigger and better and stronger than you. <laughs> yeah. But when he's with me, I'm the apex predator. I'm the boss and he does what I say. So he's fighting for dominance. Oh, okay. So first of all, I felt a little belittled. <laughs> but then I felt yeah. fine that he wasn't pecking my eye out. So I was basically fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so let's talk about the project. Um, you weren't working with eagles today, but how, how many eagles does the South of Scotland project oversee? So we have 
we've released four, so we have four young birds out there at the moment that are feeding themselves, flying around the south of Scotland. And she says both that these are sourced as eggs that you've nurtured, or...? No, so we get them as chicks. So we work with volunteers all over Scotland, and they monitor golden eagle nests, so we have to wait for a pair that has two chicks, so twins. A lot of golden eagles will lay two eggs, but it's not very common for the two eggs to get all the way to six or seven weeks old, which is when we collect them. Mm -hmm. So by that age, they are still kind of white in the head and the back, but they've got their brown wing feathers, um, some brown feathers on the back. They can keep themselves warm and dry, so we don't have to heat them, we don't have to have them kind of enclosed, and they can tear at food themselves, so we don't, we're not having to hand feed or anything like that, because they're completely wild birds. You know, we're often asked which is our favourite, or, you know, do we kind of bond with them? And I always say, well, no, because apart from collecting them, putting them in the aviaries, and the one day when we put the satellite tags on and do the vet checks, we, uh, vet checks, sorry, uh, we don't go anywhere near them. So we don't, we don't engage with them, they don't see us, you know, we're not cuddling golden eagles, they're totally wild and we just kind of leave them alone. Is it controversial that you're taking a chick out of a nest? Some people have asked, but it's... It's a quite a well-established conservation method now. You know, it's been tried with ospreys, red kites, white-tailed eagles, you know, all sorts of different things. We take one chick from a nest of twins so that the adults still have a bird left to feed. Mm -hmm. So they will continue to feed that bird and that bird you know, will fledge. So the, the disturbance to them and the impact is minimal. Um, there's always this discussion about whether birds of prey can count, you know, whether they know that there's one missing. Mm -hmm. But it's not unusual for one out of a set of twins to die at some point between you know kind of hatching and fledging they they have something called the cane enable yeah i was just about to ask you about that <laughs> yeah, about canism yeah. um so it's not unusual with golden eagles for one to kill the other even when there's food available um quite often it's driven by food so if if, if one's hungry it'll basically beat the other one up and kill it so that it gets the, all the food but you know i'm told by a lot of the experts that this can happen especially in golden eagles, even when food is available, it just seems to be something that they do. Sure. So it's quite rare to get two chicks all the way to that kind of point of fledging or the age where we can collect it. So we, we work with volunteers and then they give us a call and say, right, I've got a nest of twins at about five, six weeks old. We get permission from the landowner and you know, make sure all the licensing stuff is in place. And then we head up and, and go and collect them and bring them down. Amazing. And your hope is then to set them free and then sort of entice the resident population further south? Potentially, so yeah, so we have the birds in the aviaries for about six weeks mm -hmm. and we feed them uh, and then we tag them and, and we let them go and then we act almost as the, as the parent birds and feed them after they've left the aviary. So we put out food and the eagles can come down to it whenever they, whenever they want. They can also leave whenever they want, so you know some birds might leave after six, eight weeks and, and head off and hunt for themselves. Is that Others to stay a bit longer. It can be in a, in a natural situation. They could they could leave the parents in the nest as early as September, or they might hang around all the way until kind of March, April the next year. It seems to be really variable, and we think it's one of the reasons why, once they're kind of fledged, they have quite a good survival in the wild because the parents will feed them until the youngsters are are kind of ready to ready okay. to leave. But um, yeah, so we. We let them go and we are hopefully doing this each summer for five years and see how many we can get out. They're mingling with the naturally fledged young, so with those nests in the south, mm -hmm. uh, we know from, from the tagging data that they're kind of wandering about and finding each other. The hope is they will settle and breed and start to produce more young and then as that population grows in the south, hopefully there will be more movement over the central belt. So there's, there's very little movement north to south at the moment. Cause okay. There are available territories up north, you know, there's not any real reason for the birds to kind of come down here and wander okay. about. And the hope is that if we can boost the numbers in the south, 
it means that there'll be a little bit more movement and there's less chance of the nest in the south being lost and that kind of small isolated vulnerable population just going locally extinct. So you're making these artificial nests basically these for, for the fledglings yep. so they I would imagine you can't use the same site twice because if you've got one eagle that started there and gone out they might see that as their territory potentially. That is a very good question. <laughs> so Great, the first one. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 there's been loads. So in other projects, they have used the same site again each year uh -huh. without problem. The Irish project released their birds at the same site for, I think it was 11 consecutive years. They ha even had birds pair up, breed, and start to rear their own young within half a mile or so of that release site. Okay. And they never had any problems, so there was never any aggression between the adult birds or the young birds or kind of older birds. And we're presuming that the younger ones then left and went further somewhere else because yeah. they, although born in someone else's territory, they knew they had to yeah. leave. Okay. So, so in that case, there'd never been a problem. We, however, encountered something there's, there's quite, Molly about quite different. Sort of... <laughs> yeah, Molly's saying, yes, I'm I need to leave the nest. I want to get out of here. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah. so we released three birds in 2018. Uh, she's right, it all went wrong in 2019. Um, so we released three birds in 2018, two females and a male, and two of those birds left in about September time and have been wandering about all that time. One bird, who some of you might know, called Beaky, who has become rather famous, she hung around at that release site until about March of the next year. Okay. So she was taking that food and, and, and doing fine. She then left in about March time, been moving about hadn't come back so we were starting our next translocation in the summer of 2019 and we released three males that summer so the summer just gone and everything was going really well so the birds were you know they'd got through their first couple of nights they were roosting they were coming down to the food everything looked like it was going really well and we noticed that from Beaky's tag data that she was about 10-12 miles away. You so, radio tag all of them? Uh, yeah, they will have satellite tags sure. so we can, okay. we can get data. So we had on a map, we knew where she was, and, and she hadn't been back to that release site since she'd left. She'd never you know, shown any interest or come back. Four days after we'd released the birds in 2019, Beaky came home, and we thought, oh, this is interesting, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, we're in contact with a lot of the experts, you know, kind of daily at, at that time of year, and, and even at that point, no one really thought that there was any concern. Sure. Within about 24 hours, we realised that there was definitely a need for concern. Uh, Beaky had become very aggressive. She was defending that area. She has killed one of the youngsters, C-19, and uh, another one is missing, which I'll come on to in a minute. The third one, our Eagle Officer John, was actually in the Release Valley at the time. and he I thought you were saying that third eagle was called Eagle Officer John. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the third eagle uh, was C-17, we'll call him. His name is, is Scan. I think it's the kind of North American name for uh, kind of eagle warrior, something like that. Okay. Um, and our eagle officer, John, was out watching and he could see Beaky, this female, sat on a fence post. Uh, she was mantling her wings, so she was being kind of quite, quite aggressive, quite domineering. And he thought, this is very, very strange behaviour. And he could see, so this is from about a mile away down the telescope, he could see in the bracken underneath her a kind of wing flap. He thought, well, that's strange. There's obviously something underneath there. And she cornered one of the young birds. So... John was watching this from a distance and he thought something's, something's not quite right. You know, normally once they're out, we don't interfere. We don't try and catch mm -hmm. them or go anywhere near them. And he thought something's wrong. So he went in to have a look and Beaky, this big female who's about a year, a year old, she moved a little bit further away, but she didn't go. Normally they'd be off. You know, they fly a mile or two away before you even get close. And she kind of hung around. And as he went into the undergrowth, he found one of our youngsters, C-17, which kind of flapped 
you know, tried to fly, but it didn't fly away, which is just completely, completely wrong. You know, a healthy bird would be off, yeah. gone away from people. So we thought, well, this bird's either injured or it's starving or something's wrong. You know, maybe she's attacked it. So we picked it up, put it into the aviary, gave me a call, and that's where we went out and, and tried to find the other two. And we found one of the birds dead with laceration marks to uh, the kind of breast and the abdomen and the head. And the autopsy showed that, well, basically we think he was probably attacked by Beaky. So the older female had come in. She had been very, very aggressive towards the young birds. It looks like she'd kind of kept them away from food, maybe driven them into longer vegetation and had killed one of them. There's The third bird is still missing. So that was satellite tagged, but the tag stopped working. And we suspect it might have been there's a, still a possibility that it's you know it's alive and it's doing okay out there uh -huh. and the tag's just damaged. We suspect it's probably been killed by Beaky and it's in the vegetation somewhere that we are still trying to locate. Which I was is secretly very, very hoping that you were going to say that Beaky killed two of them and the third one was her chosen mate and they've lived a little lovely happy life together <laughs> well, instead of one's definitely dead, one's injured, and one's missing. It was it was a really really dead. tough time for the project. The third bird um, we had checked out. He was absolutely fine. He was just very very hungry, uh, dehydrated from not eating. So but we obviously couldn't release him again there. Sure. So we found a different site we had to very hurriedly build an aviary move him into that aviary and we released him at a different site and he was absolutely fine so he is now out and about he is mingling with the other birds he has spent the last month i would say within about a mile of beaky so they will have interacted you know they will have kind of got close to each other and they're absolutely fine sure. so it appears that beaky that female had had made some kind of connection to that release site i mean people use the word territorial but it's not really that it's not the right word for the situation because she's, she wasn't a territorial bird. She hadn't been back there since she'd fledged. She wasn't a breeding bird. Sure. You know, as an adult... She wasn't because she wasn't old enough? It's like yeah. four or five, I think? Generally four or five. Okay. They can settle on territory as early as maybe kind of two, something like that. Sure. But But she'd never been back to this site. She wasn't really old enough to be, you know, displaying territorial kind of behaviour. But clearly she had made some kind of connection to that site potentially to that food source, you know, maybe she saw the youngsters as, as competition or something like that, but it's it's really, really new behaviour that we've just not seen before in, in Golden Eagles. So how, how much longer has the project got set to run in its current form? Is it indefinite or have you got a, a in schedule? In its current on? form, we are going to run to about 2022, so we've got three more translocations to go okay. at the moment, and that is a kind of five-year period which was set by our kind of funding uh, okay. that, we, that we had in place but that's assessed each year if we get to the end of our five years and we think that we need to release some more birds so you, you need enough really to kind of get a population you know boosted and, and started again if we feel like we haven't got enough birds we'll then probably look for funding to keep going so we're going to wait and see okay. see how things go but it would be nice to have have something in place and a bit of support for when you know when the birds that we've released do get to breeding age and, and thinking about setting up nests and things i think this is a good point to open up to the uh congregation <laughs> audience um has anyone got any questions about the south of scotland golden eagle project at this point how, how do you approach landowners and gamekeepers who perhaps are a bit antagonistic to her, towards having golden eagles we have right from the beginning of this project we have lots of different partners involved and uh, scottish london estates is one of those partners so we were really really keen to have land managers including you know, shooting estates and things like that, gamekeepers, involved right from the very beginning. So we weren't going to go ahead unless we felt that there had been a real kind of change in the mindset and that golden eagles would be welcomed. You know, there's no point in releasing them if, if people are going to persecute them again. But we felt that it was the right time. There's been a kind of change, I think, in the mindset and, and things are, things are you know, kind of changing. 
in terms of how people perceive golden eagles and, and in a positive uh, way or in a positive yeah. way definitely yeah and, and i think that the way we've gone about it is making sure that we have really good communication so we go and we talk to different estates and not just you know not just the shooting industry but all different land managers so we're talking to farmers we're talking to forestry we're yeah. talking to renewables all that kind of thing and i mean i've seen films of golden eagles attacking sheep yeah i was good i was just going like, to i grew up on a farm okay um, and helpful health farming in particular i'm, I'm just thinking of my my dad he was also a dry steam diker. Right okay. Um, and just the lambing time, mm -hmm. just up in, up in the Galloway Hills. Um, okay. And is that a concern that you've got about? Um, well, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a bit like your sister. I don't do farms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bookseller. I can see a line of t-shirts <laughs> I'm a bookseller. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, I, I, I grew up on the farm and I, you know, I went with Dad. Sure. Up in the hills and to the lambing, yeah. um, and you know there would be concerns about you know whether it was foxes or. Mm -hmm. or, or There's been a lot of farmers that I've spoken to through this podcast who have said that they, they don't like the idea of their stock going, but there's something quite exciting about it. And there's lots of repayment processes going, so people don't lose money in terms yeah. of it. When it comes in terms of the reintroduction project, so the Lynx mm -hmm. project up in Kielder, they were if there was any death to local stock, they would reimburse yeah. the farmer. Mm -hmm. I mean, my dad would, would used to. I mean, many years ago, I can remember him bemoaning the fact that there were no hedges. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No, the hedges were all going. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of farming and, and you know and, and sheep and things like that, it's it's something that we've come across as, as not really being a concern. Um, I suppose I think because golden eagles are already in the south of Scotland, mm. the landowners that have golden eagles living and breeding there. Who also have sheep, um, you know, they lamb, they lamb in the hills. <coughs> they are really proud to have their golden eagles, and yeah. you know, we've got one or two, you know, that people can talk to if they want yeah. to, who will happily stand up and say they've never had a problem in 30, 40 years, you know, with their lambs. Yeah. We can't say that no, you know, a golden eagle yeah. will never take a lamb because it's, it, it's just, you know, they're a big bird; they they can take big yeah. prey. But it's with golden eagles, they they just tend it tends not to be a problem, or at least from from you know farming that we've spoken to all across Scotland. They're actually quite happy to have, you know, golden eagles about yeah. and golden eagles can take things like foxes and badgers yeah. and, and other things mm -hmm. that are potentially problem species yeah. as well. So mm -hmm. having that apex predator or back. Or competitor booksellers yeah. of Wigtown, if they yeah. yeah. <laughs> White town by a golden eagle. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> um, question in the back. One thing you didn't mention about one of the characteristics or one of the important things about the golden eagle. Scotland's national bird. Completely. Mm. It's a huge draw card to, to yeah. people who... Especially considering their national animal is less of a draw, considering that that's the unicorn. I was going to ask, the, the, I was gonna ask the, the, the question about have you had, what has your reaction been from the people, not just the landowners and the gamekeepers and that sort of thing, but have you had support from local communities to actually get this wonderful bird uh, as a, almost as a tourist attraction, and then what is the danger of it becoming almost exploited, like the like, like the red kite? Great question. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, the support that we've had from from people, communities in general, has been absolutely fantastic. I mean, half of our staff on the project are keyed just towards engaging with people, so telling people what we're doing. You know, that the translocation of the eagles is is really key and is the focus of the project, but it's telling people what we're doing, engaging with people and, and sharing that as well so that you know so that people can benefit from it and, and be engaged is, is really important. Yes, I think there is opportunity for for businesses, for communities to 
benefit potentially from from the eagle coming back i mean people are very very excited they're desperate to see one which with such low numbers at the moment is still quite a challenge but so some of it is is managing expectations and saying look they are out there but it's still quite a quite a rare thing for people to see um there is a lot of excitement around that kind of potential from wildlife tourism and i think there's some really great opportunities we have to be a little bit realistic in that they are very timid birds. Trying to see one is very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we don't want people to get too excited and think suddenly, you know, oh, I can make my millions from having golden eagles in, yeah, the, in the backyard. Land on your balcony no. <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you find that people are volunteering to help the project because they might get close to them and see them? Yes, we get a lot of requests for people to come and help, and it's absolutely brilliant to see the enthusiasm. But you have to say no. It's difficult. We can't allow people to help with that translocation process because it's such a hands-off experience. So what is the best way that people could support the project? Definitely get involved. We're trying to find different opportunities for people to to come and help us, Um, even giving us sightings of birds or sightings of what you think might be an eagle. Uh, we're doing training sessions so or people a big can brown blob. <laughs> yeah, and, and quite often, you know, that that might be it. But if people can tell us when and where they think they've seen one, uh, we can let them know. If it's one of our birds, we have them tagged, so mm-hmm. we, we can let them know. If it's not, we're more than happy to do some training sessions and, and help them kind of identify other bits and pieces. But get in touch. I'm sure we can find some way for them to, to help out. Great. So um, there are three questions that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, the first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Good question. I was thinking about this one sneakily because I've been listening to some of your other podcasts. So, uh, but I, I still haven't come up with an answer. My my instinct would be Australia because I absolutely adore Australia and and the outback and you know particularly kind of Queensland and and New South Wales where all the horrific fires are going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's such an incredible country with the wildlife is just so diverse. You know, things I'd seen a platypus was one of the best moments of my life. They're really small. Tiny little things. I thought yeah. they were going to be like a big badger size of thing. Yeah. But they're like sort of like a... Uh, yeah. They're almost... We <laughs> like found a, a, a dead one, strangely. We, we were out on a... I think we were on a horse trek and we came across this little kind of riverbed and there was a dead platypus lying by the side of the river and it was uninjured. It didn't seem to have any disease. We don't still don't know how it died. I think we gave it to the guy who was running the hostel. But mm-hmm. yeah, and it was maybe, you know, from the tip of my finger to my watch strap, it was not very big at all. They were tiny little creatures, but incredible, incredible. So even with the horrific fires that are going on there at the moment, I'd, I'd like to be over there even, you know, helping, trying to help the wildlife okay. and stuff. Question two, should we colonise the moon? <laughs> No. <laughs> no, I think we need to learn to look after what we've got here better before we start exploring anywhere else, personally. Forget the eagle has landed, though. Yes. <laughs> well, there's, there's the eagle up there, as we say, but there was also there was a children's film that I watched as a kid called Aquila, oh, okay. which is obviously the Latin name for yeah. eagle, and he used to fly around. So, although maybe not us, we could sort of play fictional space travellers and uh, factual Armstrongs to... To say out there. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Who knows? Um, and question three if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? <sighs> That's a tricky one because I think so many that have been lost have been lost for a reason, and the world has changed so much that bringing them back just wouldn't be a wise thing to do. You know, their, their kind of ecosystem and things have gone. I I'm going to be really awkward and dodge the question slightly and say I think we need to concentrate on saving the ones that are near extinction now and, you know, changing the world so that we can keep the ones that are on the edge of extinction rather than trying to bring back ones that we maybe had in the past. So which one on the edge? (laughs) You're not going to get out of it that easy. (laughs) I don't know. Gosh, there's so many. I mean, something like the orangutan springs to mind for me because, 
you know, that incredible Attenborough programme and that footage of the orangutan, you know, bashing away and punching at the, the machine that was, you know, pulling down its habitat. I think something like that, I mean, it might even be too late for the orangutan, but I think there's incredible habitats that we could... If we do something, we could do something positive now, mm -hmm. but if we wait much longer, we're going to lose them. So that would be, for me, something like that. Great. Uh, one further question. Last. Oh, hang on. It's, it's, it's Tessa Kade, the yeah. proprietess of <laughs> the Open Book Wigtown. One more night. Um, my favourite thing that I learned about David... I'm not quite sure I like where this is going. ...while the podcast, is that when he was a wee boy, he used to have moss as a pet. <laughs> oh, I heard that one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, shouldn't have shared you, that. Is, is this something that resonates with you? Do you have like a weird, like, did you have like a weird pet as you were a child or like an odd passion when it comes to the natural history world? Um, we had quite a lot of pets growing up, but I, in terms of an odd passion, something we, we discussed a little bit earlier in the yeah, evening. Yes, so there are two of you, Jen's in here who also works for the <laughs> South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project. Yeah, so and Jen, who's just joined our team, we, we discovered that we have a, a shared interest of collecting skulls oh. <laughs> as you do some of us do um and i remember yeah it, it was raise, raise your hands <laughs> Anyone else? disproportionate number of people bit, bit scared about that just the two of us so yeah my, my loft is full of all sorts of strange things but I, I remember finding a a snipe skull i think i'd flushed a goshawk off a snipe kill and just finding that half-eaten skeleton and the, the the shape of the the bill and that absolutely fascinated me uh -huh. and and it kind of grew from that so Everything I have has been found. Nothing has been, you know, deliberately uh, dispatched in order to create the collection. So it's feathers and skulls that I've found over the years. But things like a, a crossbill. Um, someone brought me a crossbill skull because their cat had unfortunately caught it and killed it in the garden. But to look at that, you know, that kind of the evolutionary influence on that and how it's come to feed on, on you know, something so kind of specialist, I think is fascinating. And I've used that for a lot in my work with the education. So to teach kids, you know, get their hands dirty. I think everything's too clean these days. Get have you dirty. seen that, uh, I think it's Cambridge University in their zoology department, they have an intact dodo skull, which still <gasps> oh. has some of the skin around its neck. Really? It's, it's oh, wow. quite incredible. Yeah. But I think there's so much we can learn from all the bits and pieces that we find out and about, you know, whether it's a, a curlew skull on the beach or, yeah, you know, a, a snipe skull, you know, out on the moors. Jen, what's your strangest skull in your possession? Uh, I don't think I've got a strange one, but I've got some favourites. Go on then, what's your favourite skull? Um, well, Curlew is, is one because yeah. it's huge, long beak, but probably Puffin. You've got a Puffin skull? Oh, yeah, but no Puffins were harmed in the collection of that skull. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they just die. <laughs> I, I fear that the, the title of this episode will be No Puffins Were Harmed in the podcast. Oh dear. It is a bit weird, but it's, it's fascinating and there's so much we can learn from it. So do I you have a Golden Eagle skull? I do have a Golden Eagle skull. Um, sadly, it was the bird that died this summer, uh, which is, is a horrible way to get it. And we, we almost decided not to because it was just too difficult. But I felt that out of such a horrible thing and this bird dying, if nothing else, we could learn from it and use that for the education, you know, of, of kids and things like that. Fantastic. So we're, we're going to try and maybe get it 3D modelled or something like that so we can have a, you know, have one that we can kind of play around with and kids can, can see. But uh, Great. Yeah. Um, if people want to know more about the project, where can they go to? Do you have a website? Is there? They is can there? go to our website, which is... Oh, that's a good question. No um, one can ever remember their own website. <laughs> if you Google South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project, um, go there. Yeah, there's contact details. There's kind of, you know, recent blogs and information about the project and the staff and all the various reports behind the project as well. So there's loads of information on there. Wonderful. Kat, thank you very much indeed. That's been brilliant. Uh, Beth, thank you for your music. Jen, thank you for your puffin skull, which is going to haunt me whilst I sleep this night. Uh, Tessa, 
and Steph, thank you for hosting this lovely talk and uh, we'll see you again in the future. I'll be at the bar. <laughs> The dodo skull is at Oxford University. Check your facts, Oaks. Anyway, that was Kat Barlow. I'm massively grateful to her for coming out to talk to me last week. Head along to www.goldeneaglessouthofscotland.co.uk to learn how to help those raptors further. Thank you too to Tessa and Stefan for hosting us at The Open Book, which is a bookshop you too can run in support of the Wigtown Book Festival. Check our website, treesacrowd.fm, for information on that one. And massive props to Beth Porter for giving our theme tune an impromptu live outing with only 12 hours' notice. Head along to thebookshopband.co.uk for more info on her brilliance. So that's that. We're back again in a fortnight. Please, please leave us a review or rate us on your podcast provider. It genuinely helps spread the word. And we will see you again soon. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.